On the 24th of February this year, shock swept across the airwaves as we heard Russia was invading Ukraine. The military buildup around the Ukrainian border since late 2021 was not just an intimidation tactic. The Russia-Ukrainian war had begun, and with it, the biggest threat to peace and security in Europe since the end of the Cold War. Since the UK lit up blue and yellow, over 12 million Ukrainians have fled their homes, and at the time of recording, 5,587 Ukrainian civilians have been killed. Beyond these figures we hear in the news, how are individual lives affected by the horror of war? Oh my God, this is like my whole life, you know, working hard to help my mom and repay for everything she's done for me. And if this window's like Shasha, this is basically our lives, you know, gonna shatter as well. Why are these stories so important to hear? And in the UK, with 80 years since the Liverpool Blitz, what broader value is there in sharing our own experiences of war? And the full story was never really told about the impact of the people. And I think um, that was, for, for a lot of people, that's been a big issue. The fact that it, their experiences have, have never really been recognised or acknowledged. This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. I'm content producer Megan India McGurk, and we, alongside our partners Melodic Distraction Radio, will thread together stories from our collections with experiences of people in Liverpool today, exploring connections between the past and present. Katerina Zabello has lived in Kiev for the last seven years, where she met her Scouse boyfriend, Peter. Twice a week, she wakes up early to make her way to ballet class before work. Working as a brand manager, it's been stressful lately, and she's looking forward to Saturday when she goes to her weekly art lecture. The eight-year-long conflict between Russia and Ukraine has been increasing in intensity over the last two weeks, and in the evenings, Katya is frequently brought to tears as she reads Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Katia and Peter have both packed emergency backpacks with food and medicine. Peter suggests a week away. A break would do them both good. But as she walks the familiar streets of Kiev that morning, there is a fresh tension in the air. I remember going outside to my ballet practice like early in the morning and um, they were, um, I'm not sure what's, if, if you guys have that in Britain, but um, this is all like services that take care of apartment buildings from the government. So they check the tubes, they check, you know, um, the gas, um, everything for the house, uh, house maintenance, uh, kind of. And um, you rarely see them <laughs> outside. But that morning, I remember on my way to the subway, uh, every single uh, entrance to the apartment uh, buildings, they had a brigade of this uh, service um, checking under the buildings. And I thought, oh no, like if they need to check if it's okay under the building, it probably means that they need to make sure that people can get under the building, like in a shelter. And because it was basically every single building on my way to the subway, that was so unusual that it made me think that, oh my gosh, this they are really worried. After seeing these workmen on the streets, Katia makes a call to her mother. You need to pack an emergency backpack. 
She then packs her own small suitcase for a week's holiday and leaves for the west of Ukraine. At 4am on the 24th of February, Katia and Peter wake to the sound of planes flying overhead. I woke up uh, early, I think it was like 4am, because of the sound of planes. Um, Like, you can never forget it. It's it's awful. It's right over your head and it's uh, like 30 minutes of just planes flying over your head. And um, I... uh, uh, my, my boyfriend, uh, he woke me up and he was like, oh, it started. And I'm like, what do you mean, what started? And like, what, what, what do you mean have started? He's like, the, the war, like, it, like it's obvious. Katia calls her mother and tries to calm her tears. She shouts down the phone to one of her friends to rouse her from her sleep. At 5am, she pushes her and Peter to hit the 24-7 store. Recalling wartime lessons from her grandmother, they buy beans and pasta and take out cash. We had to go to the ATM to get some cash because you never know now it's a war. What if the bank shuts down? Uh, what if um, the, um, the scanners for cards you know, don't work anymore? You have no idea what, what's happened. So again, we went to get the cash and that's when Ivana Frankivsk got bombed. So we were right in the middle of this um, right center of a city and we heard the sirens and there's nowhere to go because it's um, the main square. There's no shelter there. And uh, uh, so everyone just stopped like frozen like for a couple of seconds when the first sound uh, started because um, it's the first time for a lot of people they've ever heard a siren. Everyone just froze, looked at each other like, oh, what do we do next? And then... A lot of people just started running and a lot of people at the same time just, no, I'll just carry on with my life, you know. Like, I don't know, what was it? Like a coping mechanism? Like um, like it's not real or something? I don't know. So, um, yeah, so we kind of like hid under the roof of a building, um, took the cash, went back home, um, made sure we were all packed. But then we were like, okay, but where are we going to go? <laughs> so like we are packed, but we don't have a car. None of us know how to drive. And uh, where, where would you want to go? Katia and Peter have just survived their first air raid. Neither of them drive and they're far from home. Their next thought is probably not one you'd expect. We thought that we haven't eaten. So it's like a perfect moment to go and donate blood. So... Um, at first, uh, you know, we were a bit worried to go out. What if there's bombing again? Uh, but because it's west of U- Ukraine, uh, it was a bit less intense than other parts. So we decided to take a risk and go and donate blood. So, um, so yeah, we, we were not the only one donated blood, of course. And that was uh, shocking for me when we arrived at the uh, blood donation center. Uh, there was already a huge queue of people standing outside uh, willing to donate blood. So there were just hundreds of people waiting there. And uh, I think um, what made me really um, think about how great uh, my people and the country is, is when we were in the queue and the uh, we were already like approaching the entrance, but there were so many people in the queue behind us that uh, someone ran uh, to a nurse to ask um, what time do they close because they wanted to know if it's worth standing in the queue. And she said, we close at uh, 4 p.m., but we were going to be here until the very last person who wanted to donate blood does it. Back at the Airbnb, Katia and Peter are lucky with where they're staying. 
Their hosts are part of the Catholic organization, the Order of Malta, and have a makeshift bunker they allowed them and neighboring families to stay in. Here, Katia took care of the children. So that was the first time in my life um, uh, the kids liked me. Because <laughs> I, I find it very hard to interact with kids. They, they, they just were so scared, poor things, that they just, you know, five of them just hugged me. And um, we just sat there like that, just me hugging them and, um, you know, calming them down, telling them that everything's going to be okay, um, trying to play the toys and everything. So, um, so there were a lot of people the first night. And then... On the second day, um, I think parents, they took a decision uh, to take kids to the villages, so away from the city, um, uh, closer, you know, to the mountains where there's no, um, where there's not like, um, the risk of uh, getting a missile hit is uh, lower. Uh, so we said goodbye to the families with kids and um, it was... Um, just uh, me, Pisha, a couple of other uh, neighbors and uh, elderly who just refused to, to leave. My responsibility was to get the uh, elderly neighbors down, um, which was very hard because uh, all the people, they're very stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand them, you know, and they like, no, you know, I'm not going down. If, if that's the way I go, that's the way I go. And I had to be, no, you know, you're not going anywhere because we're taking into safety, so this is not the way you go. From the bunker, Katia also continued to work. She spoke of the war effort, how, as the war broke out, donations flooded to the military and the NGO come back alive, and how, if you're working, you're earning, you're paying tax, and you can donate. So it's not like I I, I was, like, stepping up for a, a lot of stuff, at, not at all, because, uh, you know, I'm, like, a super regular, like, young woman <laughs> that's all you know very regular so it's just everyone has to do their own bit because uh, uh, while the men were like securing the perimeter so you know f- f- for me that was okay so I take care of kids then um, and um, it's just everyone was doing a little part um, so everyone is super caring and um, looking after each other of course there's always some people that are not, you know, but you can find them everywhere in every country. So, but in majority, it's just uh, everyone knew that you just do what you can and uh, you'll be fine then if you, everyone does their own part. Katia had to face the impossibility of returning to Kiev and try to gain a visa to live with Peter in Liverpool. Coordinating from the bunker, there were many complications with even beginning the visa process. But on day five, she received some good news. She was in the system. She needed to get to Budapest to the visa center. And by some miracle, the host had a volunteer going to help Mortizas at the Ukrainian border. They had their lift. The drive took them straight to the border. But as the car pulled out, leaving them behind, they realized they couldn't pass on foot. The pedestrian crossing was miles away. And looking around, the stark reality sank in. They were stuck in a field. We finally managed to walk to the tiny village, but it looked really dead. Everything was shut, though it was like midday. And um, there was just a guy driving in a car. Um, He saw us uh, with our, you know, belongings. And um, he he stopped, he asked us, oh, are you guys from Ukraine? 
uh, for me, at the moment, I was really scared of getting into the car because I had no idea who that is. And uh, Peter was telling me stories about um, how when um, crises like this happen, um, there are people who jump on the opportunity to take advantage. And there is a problem of human trafficking when the crisis uh, happen at the border. So I remembered all of it and it was very scary to get in the car. We just didn't have any other choice. After 40 minutes in the village, they hadn't seen a bus, a person, a dog, nothing. Rather than risk being stranded in the cold as night fell, they got into his car. But thank God, he was really a genuinely very helpful, a very helpful uh, a guy. Um, and turns out so he was a volunteer who lives not far away. He's Hungarian. And um, uh, he was just helping, giving people lifts uh, from their refugee center uh, to nearby towns where they could find um, some home uh, to sleep overnight. So he offered us a lift uh, to the um, refugee center. At the refugee center, Peter went from person to person, trying to find anyone going to Budapest. And uh, he found a um, um, a woman. Um, she's a journalist uh, from Britain. And uh, he was like, oh, guys, hi, I'm also British. Like, why are you going off to that? And uh, they were, turns out they were going to Budapest. Um, so that they said, don't worry, like, we'll give you a lift then. And uh, so we waited for them a couple of hours to finish interviewing people. And they gave us a lift to Budapest. And um, in Budapest, we had uh, a, a small room in a hotel uh, that Pizza rented. And we stayed there a couple more days, like almost a week, uh, waiting for my visa response, going to the visa center. Finally got the visa and uh, booked the ticket to go from uh, uh, Budapest to Liverpool. Now Katia is living in Liverpool with Peter. Arriving here, she felt for the first time a sigh of relief. But it is far from over. Her own mother is still in Kiev. And what she has lost is hard to comprehend. So I had, you know, everything I needed in Ukraine. You know, I was genuinely very, very happy just waking up, going to my job. Um, I uh, I come uh, from a relative, like, really poor family. I was just growing up with just my mother. And so all my life I've been working um, to help my mom and um, renovate the house. And this is like, this is like sounds silly, but so I was working really hard since 18 to help her do the renovations in the house that's super old. So the first thing we did uh, was balcony windows. And her dream was always to have this uh, balcony where the windows are from top to bottom. It's windows, you know, like glass. And so I worked hard for that to get the money so I could do that for her. And then we did it. And then the war broke in. And like, seriously, the, when I felt how the windows were trembling and I was scared that the windows are going to break in winter. It's going to be freezing. I also thought, oh my God, this is like my whole life, you know, working hard to help my mom and repay for everything she's done for me, everything nice she's done for me. And if this window's like shasha, this is basically our lives, you know, going to shatter as well. Speaking to Katia, only in this moment did her stoicism flicker. Through her many brave decisions and selfless actions, she was calm and matter-of-fact when recalling her experience. 
She's keen to explain how fellow Ukrainians still in the country have to maintain a greater strength every day. It was very important not to uh, freak out and just go into a pit of this uh, desperation uh, because the life is still going on and uh, you're most useful um, when you are in your proper state of mind. So if you go down to the pit, um, then you're useless. You can't help people around you. You can't help uh, yourself. If you start crying, just breaking down, then I'm a problem, not to just myself, but the people around you, because now now they have to leave their uh, things and problems behind and take care of me instead of, you know, helping maybe someone or even themselves. So you can't, you can't do that. Um, you have to go on with your life. Uh, like, yeah, you have moments when you like break down and you like cry and everything, but you have to work. You have to make dinner, you know, so you fed. Um, so you... Um, operational you know you can operate um and uh, so so see for me that was only like five days uh i still have my mom and uh, uh my uh, some some of my former colleagues back in ukraine who do this every day so my mom she goes to work um then there's a there's a siren and their work they need to work so they would do uh she's a teacher so she conducts classes while they're sirens. They just go to the shelter and then they continue their job from the shelter. Because um, if, if, if you don't, then everything stops, everything collapses. You cannot help but be affected by Katia's story and think of the countless other Ukrainians in similar situations. She is quick to explain how her experience is far from the worst. But through talking and sharing her account, she hopes to keep Ukraine in people's hearts and help her friends and family back home. Up next, melodic distraction presenter Toby Taylor looks at a life lived closer to home, that of Blitz survivor Jim Deacon, and how viewing just one archive photo unlocked his story. For the people of Liverpool, the Blitz had a devastating impact on the city. While much of the reports at the time centred around the damage done to London, in Merseyside, more than 4,000 civilians were killed and 70,000 people made homeless during air raids. With World War II fostering the beginning of the infamous keep calm and carry on mindset, do the years that have passed offer space for us to reflect on a life built back from the rubble? Jim's initial experience of the war was relatively peaceful. Aged just two and a half years old, he was evacuated to Martin in Shropshire, alongside his two sisters and mother, Ethel. At that time, in Britain at least, the full scale of the war was yet to be realised. As told by Val Deegan, Jim's widow, Jim enjoyed life in the countryside, making the most of his new surroundings. It's a lovely little village. I think he quite enjoyed village life. If anything, it was a bit of an adventure. With the war seemingly far away, and the situation showing no sign of changing, Jim's mother, Ethel, decided to briefly return home for a weekend in Liverpool to see Jim's father, who was an air raid warden. The pair were barely back a day when the realities of war were brought terrifyingly home. On the 3rd of May 1941, their first night back in the city, the air raid sirens rang out. Jim's father was away on duty, and having been out in the countryside, Ethel was unfamiliar with the air raid shelter routine. In the midst of the chaos she decided to shelter under the stairs of their home at 3 Index Street in Walton, Liverpool. 
That night, a parachute mine was dropped on their home street. The resulting explosion completely destroyed half the road and flattened Jim's parents' house. Val recounts the horrifying aftermath of the explosion for Jim. It was just an unfortunate coincidence that Hitler decided to do an intensive bombing campaign on the Liverpool docks for a week uh, at the beginning of May, and that's when the bomb hit. The real shock about it was that uh, when the bomb fell, um, Jim's mum was killed, but he himself was under the rubble for two days before they pulled him out. And obviously every time I see something on the news about earthquakes and whatnot, I naturally think of him. 78 years later, in 2019, Jim and Val visited the Blitz Liverpool Lives exhibition at the Museum of Liverpool. It combines images of devastation across the city taken by Liverpool City Police during the Blitz, with oral histories from those who directly experienced events at the time. Jim and Val were struck by the first photograph on display, which stood out for the sheer amount of destruction on show. What had been a busy, residential street was now unrecognisable as such, with little left to identify it other than the road that ran through the middle of it. Flanking the road on either side are vast piles of rubble, where rows of terraced houses once stood. Looking at this picture, there is one overriding thought. How could anyone survive this? This is Index Street. The image showed the aftermath of the raid which had killed Jim's mother and left him buried under rubble for two days. It's hard to imagine just how Jim must have felt standing in front of a photograph that depicted the site of his mother's death and where he quite possibly could have been lying injured. The photographs, you know, they were striking. I don't know if it had all sunk in, all the things that had happened. I think he was, um, you know, surprised at the uh, the intensity of it all. You know, I mean, it's such a great big pile of rubble. Half the street disappeared. I mean, you just can't ignore it. The visual impact is amazing. You know, it triggered off memories of sorts. Jim's life, though, had moved on since the events of the war. After he was treated for his injuries and discharged from hospital, he was looked after by relatives and evacuated to Shropshire to be reunited with his sisters. After the war, Jim returned to Liverpool for the first time in nearly four years to live with his father, who had remarried. Despite his traumatic wartime experiences in Liverpool, Jim still held the city, and in particular the Mersey, which was bustling with shipping at the time, close to his heart. Partly inspired by the ships he'd seen on the river, Jim left Liverpool aged 16 to have a long and successful career as an engineer in the Navy. There, he met his wife Val, and together they had many happy memories, including travelling across the world. He said he was very struck by the first sight of the Mersey, because, I mean, it was just full of shipping in those days. But you look at the horizon and you think, what's beyond there? It sort of draws you somehow. I think he was a bit like that as well. You see, I have the wanderlust, and, and our ambition was to visit every continent before we died, and we actually pulled that off. We used to travel quite a lot. Jim and Val left a visitor response to the photograph of Index Street, which was picked up by Kay Jones, the exhibition's curator, and with Jim and Val's permission, incorporated into the wider exhibition. Jim went on to live a full and happy life, but the Blitz Liverpool Lives exhibition proved a cathartic experience for him and many others. It provides a platform for survivors such as Jim to share their stories, often for the first time. For Kay, this is one of the reasons for curating the exhibition in a way that encouraged visitor participation for those who lived through the war. She explains how enabling survivors to tell their stories also provides them with a sense of agency over their own narrative. 
one of the issues is that the story has been was subject to censorship at the time and then the full story was never really told about the impact of the people and I think um, that was for, for a lot of people that's been a big issue the fact that it, their experiences have, have never really been recognised or acknowledged so imagine how important that is to finally be able to tell that story and be recognised that your experience was incredibly important you've got to imagine all the hundreds of people this was happening to all at the same time that absolute chaos in the city no one probably took the time to check that you were okay and to, to kind of talk about it and kind of explore your feelings and things like that you would have just thought well I'm just one of the many many families that this is happening to so I think maybe kind of in retrospect when people have had time to kind of think about that to process and reflect and then to see their personal story in an exhibition is really really meaningful. Hearing this it makes me think of the Royal Museum's play in the remembrance and preservation of individual experiences. They create a collective memory and possibly even a healing effect in the aftermath of conflict. Can they also help younger generations reach a deeper level of understanding from their predecessors, one that we can extend to those across the world? Seeing those kind of distilled interviews alongside the incredibly powerful images and then in addition people's kind of responses and memories that I've added to the exhibition since. I think it just really brings home that human cost of war. And I think, obviously, lots of parallels with what's going on around the world today. So um, I think for a lot of people sharing their stories, um, they hope to kind of that people will learn from their experiences, even in relation to kind of experiences that people are going through elsewhere in the world and thinking that actually it's not that different. It's maybe 80 years ago, but really it's still in living memory, isn't it? It's kind of, it's not that far removed from what's happening today to, to what was happening on our very streets not that long ago. While Jim could enjoy his years after the war, for Katia, at least for now, the story is quite different as she fights each day alongside the people of Ukraine with humility and strength. For both, speaking out has power, whether to defy censorship, foster connection and build support, or aid healing and recovery. As the challenges of the war affect us all, we hope we can at least keep listening. Thank you for listening to the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. For more information on how you can stand with Ukraine, head to the gov.uk website for guidance. You can also find out more about the Blitz at the Blitz Liverpool Lives exhibition at Museum of Liverpool until the end of 2022. And for more stories like this, from across our varied collections, from Liverpool Film to Heroes on the Mersey, please subscribe. You can find all our episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts.